0: Hi, everyone. This is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Today, August 28th, is primary day in Florida, and if all goes according to his plan, Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum would become the state's Democratic nominee for governor, the first African-American to do so. Gillum was a guest on Cape Up in June, and he sounded an awful lot like Stacey Abrams, now the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. Will Gillum have the same success? To get you reacquainted with him, this episode is a rerun of that June conversation with the man who could make history. Mayor Gillum, thank you very much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you, brother. I appreciate the opportunity, Jonathan.
0: So you are the mayor of Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah. And...
1: Are you term limited? I am not. No, I've been on the council for 12 years. Uh, I'm uh, now youngest, in my 15th. Yeah. You're the
0: youngest person ever yeah, elected, elected yeah. to the council. I'm 23. You're, and you're now, you said, in your
1: 15th year. I'm in my 15th year, correct. And you're not term limited as mayor. Not term limited. My term expires in November. But I could run again, but I will not be running again, obviously.
0: Why would you give up yeah. the security of being mayor of the capital of Florida yeah. to run to be the governor
1: of Florida? Yeah, I mean, the truth is, is one, I have thoroughly enjoyed my time in public service at the local level and is still enjoying it. The truth is, though, you come to a point where the changes that you're trying to make at a local level are being impacted by what's happening above you. In our case, right, we're trying to get a handle on poverty, on affordable housing, on a changed economy. I'm proud to be the mayor of what is the fastest growing economy in the state of Florida per capita, but the truth is is that 46% of the people in the state of Florida can't make ends meet, and they say they can't make ends meet at the end of the month based off of the economy that we have in our state. Similarly, the criminal justice system and unforgiving cycle where we're not allowing people to get their rights restored automatically, where by and large, many of these individuals are getting out of incarceration, returning to our communities, and there are very, very few economic opportunities for them. I mean, I had a brother who had a record, got out, applied for a job, applied for a job, applied for a job, and got no, 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 such to the point that he had to start his own business. He started by power washing sidewalks. That turned into power washing houses, which then turned into power washing buildings and retrofitting semi trucks. And now he runs a a successful business and hires a bunch of former felons to do the work with him.
0: You know, as you're saying that story about your brother, there would be people, Republicans, conservatives, bootstrap Republicans who would say, see, aha. That's the way it's supposed to
1: work. Well, the truth is, if you were to seriously ask my brother whether he wanted to be an entrepreneur, he'd say no. He said he got into it because he needed to provide a meal for his daughter, uh, housing, clothing for his family. And so it was born out of necessity. Now, in his case, it worked, right? But how many cases are out there where it didn't work? How many people don't get access to, um, you know, uh, Republicans are often you know, known for saying, pull yourself up by the bootstrap. But then we erect all of these barriers that keep people from being able to do just that. And so, you know, as the mayor of the city of Tallahassee, I was proud to ban the box. We don't ask about criminal background history when you apply for the job for a job in the city of Tallahassee, unless answering yes to having had one is a disqualifier for the position. If it's not a disqualifier, we're going to measure you on your merit. Are you qualified? Can you do the work? Will you make a good employee? And quite frankly, those individuals are some of the hardest working people we have within our government because, Jonathan, they know what it means to be without, right? And so what I'm simply saying is consistent with conservative thinking, if you will, let's create an opportunity for people to have the dignity around work, that if you make a mistake and you pay your penance back to society, that you then are ought to be able to reintegrate society, be able to get a job earn decent living and take care of yourself and your family.
0: All right. So you mentioned economy, criminal justice system. What about gun control? Florida has been the site of some really horrific mass shootings. Yeah. Pulse nightclub. Parkland. Uh, Fort uh, Lauderdale uh, airport. Oh, right. The Fort Lauderdale airport. And, you know, I want to this doesn't exactly fall under gun control uh, and more in terms of race, which I'll get to in a moment, you know. George Zimmerman and what he did to Trayvon Martin happened in
1: Florida. That's right. That's right. No, you're absolutely right and you're right to call it out. I will tell you, though, I do think we're in a particular moment in my state around this issue. We had, although, again, I, I thought at the time and think now it was insufficient to meet the moment, but we had the first Gun legislation passed a legislature in a generation in the state of Florida, which was conceived of and not perceived by the gun lobby to be friendly. Right. It was it was a little bit of adding some restrictions of which they stand firmly against. I got sued by the gun lobby. They had me in court for two years, all because we refused to repeal the local ordinance which said you cannot shoot guns in city parks. Right? not courageous, nothing earth-shattering. That was you cannot, that a thing? That was a thing, man. Wait,
0: that people were actually firing guns in city parks?
1: Well, the ordinance existed, right? And so the idea is... I mean, you may, I, I know in my family, we had folks who shoot guns up New Year's Eve, not thinking about the fact that the bullet the, has to come down. You know, that kind of thing. There are yeah. practices that we don't necessarily, I may mean, not practice in ourselves, but that exists within culture, right? And so what we simply said is you can't shoot guns in city parks where families play and kids picnic. But Florida law allows, even today, post-Parkland, allows for an elected official to be personally sued personally held liable up to $5,000, personally responsible for reimbursing the attorney's fees of the opposing party up to $100,000, and subject to removal from office at the discretion of the governor, if you vote to enact gun laws, right? And so this is still the, I know you're, you're shocked, Jonathan, but this, I'm is, thinking of that, this la- is that law.
0: Who's that lady who?
1: Marion Hammer. That's her, that's it. So that's that. This that, is a Marion Hammer special. Uh-huh. In the, in, in the state of Florida. And so, The good news is, is in my case, we beat them at the circuit court. We beat them at the appellate court. and We wanted to take it to the Supreme Court if they wanted to push us that far. Today, it is still on the books. And now we have over a dozen cities all across the state of Florida that have joined in a lawsuit seeking declaratory judgment from the high court on whether or not this particular piece of legislation is legal. The court has always previously recognized preemption that the state has the power to carve out. This, however, is what we have been referring to as super preemption. This is not only does the state get to carve out a territory for regulation on its own, it goes even further to personally penalize an elected official based off of how they vote. We've never seen this before. I've never heard. I have never heard of that. That is nuts. This is law. And unfortunately, we're seeing at the hands of groups like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, other ultra conservative groups, many of them pushed by big industry, in this case, the gun lobby are attempting to really force local governments to give up their power and authority across a whole range of issues. And before it was just carve out the territory and now it's carve out and then penalize, carve out and sue, carve out and personally hold responsible and liable for an action that I take in my official capacity, an individual for that action, for that vote they're carrying out, they're constitutionally in in state Supreme Court and municipally charged, oath of office, we're being held to a different standard. And it's a chilling deal. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the idea here is to intimidate and to chill elected officials to stay out of their way. So then as
0: governor, yeah. what are you going to do about it? it? Can you even be successful when you've got the lady hammer out yeah. there yeah. holding sway over Tallahassee?
1: Yeah. And, and, and the legislature most specifically, and in this case, the governor's mansion as well. Uh, listen, I believe that there are more of us who believe in common-sense forms of gun safety than there are those who don't. Now, some may challenge that statement, and that's fine, but the truth is is the public polling post-Parkland showed overwhelming support for universal background checks, regardless if it was private sales, personal and private exchanges, or through the gun show. There was a majority of citizens in my state, those who were polled, who said that they believed that we ought to have an assault weapons ban. We believe that weapons of war don't have a place on city streets. If you want to fire off a weapon that can shoot off 60 bullets in 60 seconds, you should join the military. But as for... Those guns having a domestic role in society for every citizen to get access to and to turn that firepower on their neighbors, on their school board, on their school members, their classmates, it doesn't make good sense. And I think the majority of us agree that it doesn't make good sense. The power of the gun lobby, as we all know, is not so much in how much money they give, it is in the fact that through a push of a button, through an email, Through a robocall, they're able to activate a group of activists who can shut down my email system through the volume of their communications Mm -hmm. and, quite frankly, show up at city council meetings angry, loud, and very insistent that you're treading on their rights if you do anything to impact the guns, the use of, the sale of, the purchasing of. And unfortunately, we've got to have a counterbalance to that of people who are equally as ready, capable, and energized to show up and say, you're either for me or against me. You are for my life or you're against it. And unfortunately, we haven't had that. But I think we're in a moment where we may be developing it amongst this generation of young people. Have you
0: met any of the Parkland kids? I
1: have. I have a number of them. I actually went down less than a week after the shooting and held a voter registration rally. And frankly, I was nervous at first because I didn't want to appear imposing. But these folks took the, took, the, took the mantle. I mean, they took. These kids the are bullhorn. incredible. They are. They're providing life to this movement around common sense gun reform and are really drawing a line in the sand. You probably saw what they did as it relates to Publix, where shopping is a pleasure in my state. One of the biggest private sector employers in the state of Florida. They bought them to their knees because they decided, public supermarket, to give one of my opponents on the Republican side, Adam Putnam. Almost $700,000 of a campaign contribution from the company. And when the students of Parkland stood up and said, you just gave that much money to a man who is a self-admitted NRA sellout, that he's a sellout to the NRA is how he describes himself to Floridians. That's okay with you where shopping is a pleasure. And they raised their voices. They did a die in. And then the Publix came out with a statement that said, we are reevaluating all of our political contributions from Publix, the corporation, and we'll be putting on hold any additional contributions until we work out a new policy.
0: I mean, I remember seeing David Hogg. David Hogg is how I knew about that. He like Every day it seemed like there was a tweet That's after right. tweet after tweet. These kids, and I am adamant in calling them kids because mm. it, I think it adds to the power of what they've been I able agree. to do. So you've got, you have a primary. Yes. It's August 28th. Yeah.
1: How many other people are running? Well, it's funny you ask. A lot of people? We got a new one today. Oh. Uh, another uh, a billionaire. We had three millionaires. Now we have a billionaire and me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Three millionaires, a billionaire and you. Yeah, exactly. My mother was a school bus driver. My daddy was a construction worker. I am one of seven kids, number five of seven, and the first of my siblings to graduate from high school Mm. and the first to graduate from college. And I simply don't buy this belief that in Florida you have to be a millionaire in order to run to serve the people of our state. I believe that you can have a passion for the people of Florida, a passion for change-making, a passion for addressing the issues that frankly show up in our communities every day that fly under the radar of the status quo conversation in politics. And honestly, we're getting the kind of energy and enthusiasm out there that I believe is what's going to be the difference between our winning this August primary and, quite frankly, what could happen to the Democrat if we end up not having me as a nominee in November. That kind of energy and enthusiasm won't just show up for anybody. Okay, this is going to sound more aggressive than it is. So what makes you so special? Well, I don't. Let me tell you this. I do think it matters, my lived experience in the state of Florida. Rick Scott showed us that you could buy your way into the governor's mansion. In a very literal sense, showed up at the very end, spent 70 plus million of his own dollars and bought the Republican nomination and indeed the governor's office. Now, the Democrats have lost the race for governor in the state of Florida the last two cycles by less than one point. Fewer than 70,000 votes in a state of over 20 million people, a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans by over 300,000 and more independents in Florida identify with the Democratic Party than they do the Republican Party. So why is it for 20 years have we been losing? So why it's, is that? My opinion as to why we've been losing is that we keep running these races as if we are running Republican light on the belief that if we are just good enough, just nice enough, just acceptable enough, if we don't say loud enough what it is that we believe in, that maybe they'll like us, and when they go into the ballot box, they'll choose us. And what Republican voters have shown us is that when they have the choice between the real thing and the fake one, they go with the real one every time. They could like us. They could love us. They're not giving their vote to us because we don't line up with their belief system all the way, right? When they've got a candidate that they can go with who 100% believes what they believe, right? And then our our voters, the very ones that we need in order to win, we're not providing them a motivation or a stimulation to get out there and vote for us. Why? Because they're not sure that we're for them. right? And so I have not capitulated on what I believe in this race. I've run full on into what I stand for and I believe there are a majority of voters in our party who will agree with that. In fact I believe if we make it to the November election that we will have a majority of citizens, voter eligible citizens, who quite frankly don't want a candidate who's running against Trump they already know that he's uniquely unqualified for the job that he holds, that he is a danger to himself and to the country. But we will litigate that again in 2020. As for now, those voters want to know what are we going to do to make the economy better for them? They want to know what are we going to do about the high stakes testing and our public education system, which doesn't tell us what our kids know, but how well they take a test and how are we going to make sure that their kids get an opportunity to learn so that when they graduate, if they're on a track to college, that they're prepared and skilled or if they're on their way to just graduating high school, that they've got a skill that they could monetize, go to work, get a job, and earn a decent wage where they can take care of themselves and their families. we got to give our voters a reason to go out and vote for something and not just against. And I'm afraid that we're trying to line up to be the anti-Trump party, and I'm anti-Trump as much as anybody else. I'm just not trying to believe that that's how we're going to win this race for governor. We're going to win by giving voters a reason to vote for us and not just against somebody else.
0: Well, I mean, there's not being the anti- Trump party but I mean there are some folks within the Democratic Party who think well we should try harder we yeah. mean Democrats should try harder to reach those Trump voters like we've lost them the Democratic Party has lost those voters we should do everything we can to bring them back and if we do that we
1: mean Democrats will win yeah well, what do, what do you think about that <clears throat> there were 6 million fewer democratic votes and 6 million votes in the 2016 election than were in the 2012 election That means to me that the country has not lost its mind, right? They didn't have a candidate that they felt motivated enough to get out there and vote for. We would draw the wrong lesson if what we think we need to do is go out there and track a voter who is a diminishing part of the population and an increasingly resistant part of the population to the Democratic message, especially when we've got such a rich opportunity to talk to voters who want to be with us, but they're not sure if we're with them. They want to believe that we've got a message and a plan of action to make their lives better, but they're not hearing us talk about it. Right. And to the extent that they are hearing us talk about it, they don't believe the messenger. They don't believe that we believe what it is that we're saying. Right. It's poll tested It's messaged. It's uh, somebody has pulled together this awesome message box and they held a big press conference to say this is what the Democrats are for. And people are like, I. And I, I don't know what that means. That hasn't that hadn't shown up in my neighborhood or on my street or on my block. Right. And so what I have said, and I think what is different about us is that I don't need a poster to tell me what to believe in this race. I don't need a set of message board points to tell me that people are hurting in my state. I know it because I've lived it. I remember what it was like to watch my mother and father trade between which bills they could pay before something got cut off. Right. And I believe having had the experience of not only what it means to survive in the state of Florida, but what it means to thrive in this state, that there are some things that we can do that is within our power to help put together a system and a set of public policy solutions that really do provide more lift for more people. I believe that because that's been my lived experience And I think that that is what is going to make way for us to not only break through this primary election, but is what's going to pierce the hearts, the minds, the imagination, the hope, the inspiration and aspiration of voters all across our state who may or may not be Democrats. And I'm certainly not pinning that on our ability to go after a Trump voter who may not like me and may not be willing to embrace me, but I'm still going to speak the truth. And if they if they're willing to be a person of goodwill and hear that and find themselves in what we're saying, I believe they'll choose me as well. That being said, I'm not going to capitulate and shrink from who I am and what I believe in in this race. You know who
0: you sound like. I don't. Stacey
1: Abrams. Oh Lord. Well, that's sound my, that's my and and
0: I say that because I interviewed Stacey Abrams in September of last year, September of 2017. I moderated a panel for the CBC at their annual oh, yeah. convention. And she was on the panel. Someone on Twitter sent me a message saying, do you know about her? You need to pay attention to her. She could be the first black female governor of Georgia. And so lo and behold, like a few days later, there I am on a panel with her, and I'm watching her, and I'm listening to her. And immediately I said, can you come on my podcast? Can you come tomorrow? She was able to do it. And she said, not exactly what you said, but the themes and the message are pretty much identical. Are you hoping... That lightning will strike twice yeah. in the South. I
1: hope so. And yes. allow you to win the primary in the way that she did in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, obviously, our primaries are slightly different. I'm in a five-way race now. Um, and, and she had a head-to-head, um, which in many ways is probably very, very difficult uh, when, 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 you, when you size it down. And our race, we know that the math is there to make it through this primary it exists. My challenge is is that because I am not self-funding, because I'm going out leaning on the generosity of everyday folks by and large. We've got over 20,000 contributions. Uh, my mother's one of them. She's on auto deduct. She gives 5 to $20 a month, right? Oh, <clears throat> and calls us to make sure that when it comes out of her account, it made it to us, right? right? Did you get the <laughs> sure. package? Your mother's old yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, right? Old school, all the all way, right? School. She didn't trust it. You get the envelope it. with the money That's right. folded up in the news That's newspaper right. That's <laughs> so right. that no one can see it. That's in. right, and they don't call it money when they talk it to you. They call it a package, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Just to make sure nobody knows, you know, here's it. But honestly, it is extremely challenging. It takes a lot of work to move across my state, a state as big as Florida, the third largest state in all of America, and have to do it off the strength and the will of your ability to get into a car and burn rubber each day, making calls after calls after calls to some of the traditional establishment donors and being told, you know, you don't have the money. Philip Levine's all over television. We'd like to be with you and my heart is with you and I really wish you well. But it just seems this is just this is just not gonna be possible and it Blows my mind because I always want to say, well, you could be that difference, right? You could be the difference. But that's okay. We're going to keep running our race because I feel like we've got everything that we need and we'll have everything that we need to run the kind of primary race that we've got to run in order to win. Well, what lessons from
0: Stacey Abrams' primary victory in Georgia are you applying to your race.
1: Yeah. So the field is incredibly important to us. And we don't have a huge paid field operation. Much of our field is being managed and run with the support of about 2,300 volunteers that we've been able to amass over the length of this race. These are people who are activated. They're energized. They want a phone bank. They want to walk. They want to call and dial for dollars. It's a great group. Obviously, there's a difference between paid canvassing and volunteer canvassing, but I trust our volunteer effort uh, more than I do anything. These are people who got to us and got convicted by our message and what we're trying to do, and they're putting everything into it. Jonathan, I was at an event just this past weekend down in Miami put together by some of our volunteers, and I showed up. Now, mind you, these folks had reached out to us and asked us about yard signs. And we said, you know, we're not at the place yet where we're purchasing yard signs. I get down there and these people have yard signs. I said, what you I get yard signs? Oh, we put our money together and we bought a bulk set of yard signs. They've got stickers and buttons and shirts that they have paid for themselves. And not just in Miami, the same thing has happened in Tampa. These people are coming together, putting their own resources together. Did anyone ever do this in any of your races for city council or or mayor of Tallahassee? Never. I ran for city council in 2003. I was in a seven-way race, raised the least amount of money. Nobody thought we could win. And I have to admit, including my mother, who gave me a $20 contribution that time (laughs) and told me not to spend it all in one place. Right. She believed in me, but she understood I was running in a seat that was almost 70 percent white. I wasn't from Tallahassee, went to school there, attended Florida A&M University. But by and large, that wasn't my thing. And guess what we did with that money? And any political expert and strategist out there would have been like, what are you doing, Gillum? We bought T-shirts. And we outfitted everybody that we could, my classmates, students who had recently graduated, other young people, put on T-shirts, and we knocked doors, right? It was the best decision I ever could have made. We couldn't afford to go on television. We couldn't afford all the billboards. We couldn't afford all of that, but we had walking billboards. People who were passionate, they knew me, and they were willing to get out on the streets and help us win, and we won that race, making me the youngest person in the city of Tallahassee's history to serve on the Tallahassee City Commission.
0: So not only were you African-American, yeah. but running in a, in a city you'd never lived in yeah. before, that's 70% white, yeah. And you're young, 23. I might have mentioned that yeah. twice. It shows you how old I am in my memory. How did you bridge that divide? How did you get white voters to entrust
1: their vote with right. you? Well, I tell you, and, and they've done it repeatedly in our area. The truth is, is I really think it's kind of simple. I think we overcomplicate politics sometimes in, in, in this way. Our voters, our folks got to know me. I went to them and I asked them for the only thing my mother and father ever told me to ask for in life. And that was a chance. And I asked those voters if they give me the chance, I promise to get up every day committed to trying to make our community better. I had some specifics around some things I tried to do. And I think that we've lived up to that. Today, we are, again, the fastest growing economy. Our crime rate is the lowest it's been in five years in my community. And we didn't do that by simply arresting people and throwing away the key. Yes, if you broke the law, there were penalties for that. But we also did things like civil citations, adult and youth civil citations. We hired new police officers to do more community policing. We, I was proud to help initiate this program called Community Connections, which is a restorative justice model where instead of our first time nonviolent offenders going before a judge and a court of law and being told that they have committed some crime against the inanimate state of Florida, who they've never met, never shaken her hand, don't know what she smells like. They go before community justice panels, Miss Jackson, Miss Jefferson, the victim, the victim's family, and they get to hear how their actions impacted us, the community. Now, the recidivism rate in our state is measured at six months after adjudication. This class of characters, six months, 40% of them, state average, have gone on to recidivate. And our program, six months after they are completed it? 90-plus percent of them have not gone on to recidivate, right? And it's not because we're brilliant. It's because it works. It's more complicated. It's smart justice. It requires a little bit more effort, but it works. I'd like to see that kind of work scaled up all across the state. I got to ask you, you were elected, you said 2003. Wow,
0: that's 15 years ago. Yes, man. Uh, So 2003. Was Jeb Bush governor? Jeb Bush was governor. Okay, so Jeb Bush was the Republican governor of Florida. Yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. 2018, the president of the Uni- United States is Donald Trump. Yeah. Just from your constituents, how has the Republican Party changed? Because I know you, you a lot of Republicans yeah. around of where you are. How have they changed from the Republican Party of yeah. Bush yeah. to the Republican Party of Donald Trump? Have they become increasingly... Yeah. Or are they keeping their politics local in that we know you, we like you, we're voting for you, you're not one of them, but we're sticking with him in terms of
1: president? Yeah. So first of all, locally, Tallahassee is a blue dot in a sea of red. We're considered the smartest city in the state of Florida. One of every two people has at least a bachelor's degree. We're the state's capital, and we've got Florida State University and Florida A&M University that also helps to anchor it. That being said, we are still in the South, and we know that, and I get pretty constant reminders about that I'm gonna process. I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But go on. Well, I, I'll tread lightly, but let me just say this. This party, and I'd like to think that Trump is part of the last stand of character who believes that I want my country back. I want it the way that it once was. His idea of make America great again, in my opinion, is a red herring for much more, I think, insidious, probably byline that isn't overtly stated, but I think is inherent in what he's suggesting. My belief is, is that we had a difficult time on our side, moving our people to vote and that it made and gave the impression that America had lost its mind. I don't believe that we've lost our mind. I do think that we lost a little bit of inspiration. I do believe that there were people who were just sick and tired of being told that the change was going to come and it never came for them. And that disbelief and absence of hope is really sediment in the process, particularly in my party, where our voters are saying that they are not going to accept a flawed candidate when they feel like they could have better, someone more reflective of what their values are. And if they don't get that, they're showing many of them that they're willing to let the house burn down. And I hate that. Because I think that it is not realistic in politics. We get choices. And our absence, our unwillingness to vote on those choices is a de facto gift to the other side. That if you're not willing to come out, I was told this line a long time ago when I first entered politics, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I know that feels like a cop out for a lot of people that why can't I have it my way all the way And it's the same reason I tell people that if I'm not the Democratic nominee, I'm going to get out there and work for whoever the Democratic nominee is because I believe they will be better than the alternative. Not all of what I want, but better than the alternative. Now, it's my prayer that we won't be in that position. I'll be calling around asking my opponents to join me in this effort to win back this state. But we've got to reinstill some, in my opinion, motivation, some belief in our voters again that we're for them. And if they don't hear us out there activating for them, if they see us capitulating on the things that matter, if we're not speaking up, when we see instances like Trayvon Martin and the everyday gun violence that, quite frankly, pervades communities, Liberty City to Tallahassee and every place in between, when those incidences happen, that we only see the activation of our white political voices and the argument when their kids are on the line. That is a little bit of a depressant for some of these people. And it's one of the reasons why I give so much credit to the Parkland students that they could have taken that moment and that shine and talked only about Marjorie Snowman Douglas. They didn't do that. And we saw that on field display on the march in Tallahassee, the rally for we had one in Tallahassee, but also in the state's capital, the March for Our Lives. Oh, where, in Washington. In Washington. Yeah. I keep saying Tallahassee. I'm clearly focused on, <laughs> I go, I follow. on, on, on Tallahassee. But the point being, they merged communities of color with white predominant white communities middle class the places where this stuff doesn't happen and they bought it together and they said we're in this fight together that we've got to do something about the ubiquitous access to guns that's snuffing out all of our lives right that is causing us all to feel under threat and I just think that may be the moment Jonathan that hopefully helps us to see some real transformation happen on this argument on this conversation Let me bring you back to something you
0: said um, earlier when I was asking you about Trump voters and the Republican Party and its change from, you know, the Republican Party of the Bushes to the Republican Party of Donald Trump. You said, you know, well, we're in the South and you get daily reminders that you are in the South. What kind of daily reminders?
1: Well, I got in trouble for calling this out before in my own state press and my local press because they felt like I was dogging them. And I really wasn't. I simply was stating a fact, which is, is that there probably isn't a week that didn't go by that I'm not driving behind somebody's Confederate flag, right? The decals on cars or some other reminder, right, of a sign that they're attempting to send to me. Now, it's my choice whether I internalize it. But I don't buy this hogwash around it's all about here. Many of these people are young teenagers mm-hmm. uh, that we see. We've had this issue flare up in my community, but also communities all across the state. In the aftermath of the shooting at Mother Emanuel and the panhandle, we had a county that voted to re-resurrect the battle flag in front of the Capitol, right? In front of the courthouse in, the, in that community at the state Capitol. But this is a real issue. And my only point in speaking up around these Confederate monuments and around these symbols that do inflict hurt and pain on a whole section of people is that we are in a moment where we have something to do something about it, where our kids, my kids, my three kids won't have to fight this same battle. And if we're in a position now to wage it and hopefully make it a little bit better for what comes next, then I think we got to, we, we've got we we got to lean into that. Uh, and I'm not afraid to lean into that. I recognize that my part of the state isn't the rest of Florida. Florida could very easily be four different states. Uh, Somebody might make an argument for even more. But I definitely know that there are different elements that exist in our state. In this Democratic primary, uh, the bottom three counties will represent 50% of the primary electorate. Mm. Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, 50% of the votes cast in Florida's 67 counties resides within three counties in the state. We've got to become more familiar with the various parts of our state and the fact that there's a whole section of people in my state who feel unreflected, unheard, unrepresented, and the things that they care about unrepresented. And so part of my run in this race is to say, we see you and we hear you. And those people aren't just in the bottom three counties. They exist also in the northern panhandle of the state of Florida, a region of the state that we may never win. But running for governor of the state of Florida is not the electoral college. Right. We got to lose less in those places.
0: <laughs> right. And so you go to those places yes. where there are probably more Confederate battle flag decals. Sure. I asked this of Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax uh, of Virginia.
1: I'm ask you this, too. Anyone hurl the N-bomb at you? Not directly to my face. That might be a situation. I'm playful about that. But the truth is, is that it's,
0: it's happened.
1: I, if it has, I've hopefully not heard it. And my guess is, is that there may be people who think it and may never say it. That doesn't stop us from going. I mean, we've been to red parts of our state. I went to the villages to campaign, which is the most conservative voting precinct in the country. Every presidential nominee for president goes through there and they do a golf cart parade for those folks. (laughs) I mean, it is a stronghold in my state. And I went there because there are voters who I think I can reach there as well. And I went there for a meet and greet thinking I might meet 50 or 100 people. And we got there, and this place was teeming with over 500 retirees, not another face that looked like mine. And I talked to them about my vision and North Star for the state of Florida. And when we finished, an elderly white gentleman stood up, and he says, I believe Gillum ought to be the next governor of the state of Florida, and I want to give you $20 to help you along your way. And I go to get the $20 and thank him for it, and he says, no, 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 no. If anybody else believes this young man ought to be the governor, I want you to give him 5 10 and 20 $20. And when we finished, we walked out of there having raised nearly $6,000 in five, ten, and $20 contributions, Whoa. right? And the place where they told me I wasn't supposed to go. And so to the point, we got to be willing to go everywhere. And, and, and frankly, when I entered this race, one of the first persons that I reached out to was Deval Patrick. Former um, governor of Massachusetts. Absolutely, former governor. And I just, I went to sit at his knee. I said, I know you can't be involved in these races, but I want to know what advice would you give me? And he gave me a good deal of information. But one of the things that stood out is he said, go where they don't expect you. Right? He said, go where they don't expect you. And I've internalized that. I've tried to show up in places that people don't expect me and may not have invited me and may not even want me there to introduce myself and say, when I'm governor of the state of Florida, I got to be the governor for all the people of the state of Florida, not just some. So, in doing my research
0: on you, you do type your name in, Google search, go to news, and the Florida papers are all writing about this situation with the FBI and investigation, and you are tied up in it somehow how yeah. is that impacting your campaign and you know for those who are listening who are from Florida might know a little bit about yeah. it what's going on yeah. here because you're not the subject of the investigation no, no. but somebody else is
1: yeah it appears that this investigation which by the way I should say I have zero tolerance for corruption inappropriate or illegal behavior. And the last several months, there appears to have been an FBI investigation into what we thought was writ large, something within our government. It began with our Community Redevelopment Agency, of which I am the chair of. And it has now led to a slew of subpoenas that have yielded a pretty telling federal it hadn't been an indictment yet but a posting a subpoena request that got posted in an unleaked uh, fashion even though in a unsealed fashion which means it became publicly available and we pulled that document down and it showed at least an accusation of one of my colleagues having taken money potentially in exchange for votes on a set of questions that have come before the commission. Now, obviously, I don't know. This is the government's argument, and we have yet to hear the other side of that argument. So he he is entitled to that. But what we have said is, is that while I know every one of the players, I met the FBI agents. They were in my community for a year. I had no reason to be concerned, even if they were FBI agents. The most concerning part is that There was a reason they were there, and they thought that they could potentially sniff out a situation where people were making, I think, inappropriate or maybe illegal decisions. It is now clear to me that this investigation has zeroed in on a colleague of mine, which I deeply regret, and maybe some other individuals. As it relates to us, my opponents are working overtime because of my knowledge of all the individuals, the fact that I'm the mayor of the city where this individual sits on my council. And we've had to deal with that. And frankly, I've had to deal with it now for eight months, it feels like. It went away shortly after all of the you know, the subpoena became clear, and we got a new round of subpoenas. And this particular round includes somebody who was my campaign treasurer when I ran for mayor of the city of Tallahassee, and a friend that I've known since we were in college. For 20 years, we were both student activists. We have since sort of severed ties because... Obviously, I want to know what's going on just as much as anybody else. That being said, people are entitled to their friendships, and we're all entitled to be disappointed by our friends when they disappoint us. No one should draw the conclusion, and I certainly don't believe that there's any evidence to suggest this, but that I have done anything inappropriate at all as it relates to my vote and how I conduct myself on the city council. I would never, ever, ever betray the trust of the public I've been elected 15 years by doing right, not by doing wrong. And I think that that shows in my record of service.
0: This friend of yours who you've known for 20 years, finding out that he was into something that required you to say, we're we're done. How did that make you? This is like television morning TV question, but how did it make you feel that all of your work in your career is hanging on
1: to somebody I know,
0: somebody you, somebody you
1: knew? Yeah, I. It's upsetting, right? Because you try to comport yourself in a way to be consistent with your values every single day. You show up. You work hard. You stand by your word. You you do your job. Right. And as I said, I haven't worked this long for my community to turn around and do something stupid, something that compromises not only myself, but my family and my role. And to have that sort of so closely conflated with potentially the actions of somebody else, of which actions that, if proven to be true, would be a bombshell, not just for me, but also for our community, is extremely hurtful. What I rest in though, Jonathan, what allows me to keep on this trail and persist through it day in and day out is the fact that I know what my actions are. I know how I comport myself and how I conduct myself and how I have for 15 years and before that how I was raised. And I know that at the end of the day, I hope to be valued for what I've done, not the actions of somebody else. I stand firm in saying that if someone has done wrong, has conducted themselves inappropriately, they ought to be held 100 percent accountable. And I've tried to make sure that we have been completely transparent in all of our records and everything that we've provided to the uh, federal government uh, in their investigation. I think it's important that we do that. And it's my hope that people will continue to have trust beyond this process. Regardless of how this works out for maybe my colleagues and, and those who have been found to be involved in something inappropriate. You have three kids.
0: You mentioned yeah. that before. They're
1: young, aren't they? Yeah. I got a set of four-year-old twins. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my son, that. Jackson, and my daughter, Caroline. And I have a newborn who's one year old. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Happy birthday. So they're really young. Yeah, they're young. When they are in school,
0: yeah. assuming that they still teach civics by, by then, and they learn about this period, about yeah. your run, yeah. and let's say you're not successful yeah. in your primary quest, what do you hope your children learn
1: about you yeah. from this period? Yeah, I hope that they know that their mother and father made tremendous sacrifice not only for their futures, but for the futures of other kids just like them. Because honestly, Jonathan, nobody makes this decision to run with so much going on in there three kids, my wife, myself, a lot at stake here. You don't just wake up and decide, oh, well, this would be a fun thing to do. If you make this decision, it better be a calling. It better be so you ought to feel so convicted in your spirit that you can't shake it, you can't sleep at night until you reach this conclusion. And when my wife and I had this conversation, in spite of the trials that this would present, absolutely the hardest thing that we've done, either she or myself, on our years on this earth, but we believe we're doing it not only for our kids, but for the kids that we can't name. I hope that they know that their father put everything into it, that not only was I not a quitter, that because of our persistence, that at the end of the day, we were the victorious ones, right? And that we were able to transform our state in such a way to make it a state that was deserving of them. Not the other way around, but, but a state that is deserving of everything that they have to offer. I would take tremendous pride if that's the legacy of this whole thing. And if the conclusion is, is that it wasn't my time to be governor at this point, I hope that our run will provide motivation and inspiration for the next little black boy from Richmond Heights uh, who grew up in a working class household to make the decision that they don't have to be a millionaire, but they too can run and serve and give back to a state or community that they love. I hope that people will be able to make that determination either way, quite frankly.
0: Andrew Gillum, mayor of Tallahassee and candidate yeah. for governor of the great state of Florida. Thank you very much for, you for being having on the podcast. Me. I
1: appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of the Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
1: If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Holman. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington,
0: Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.